Hey, my friends, welcome back to season four, episode 14 of the FASD Family Life Podcast. Did you know that this is the only show about FASD hosted by an FASD specialist and a parent with over 30 years lived experience? I'm Robbie Seal, mom to five incredible people, including three teens diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And as an FASD specialist, it is my passion to help families thrive. To learn more about me and my work, check out my brand new website, FASDFamilyLife.ca. You know, I started this podcast to be the friend I wish I had when my kids were young and also to bring hope to weary parents. I wanted to share what I've learned over the years working in residential treatment, in group homes, and in raising my own children impacted by trauma and prenatal alcohol exposure. I pour my heart and soul and hundreds of unpaid hours every month into the production of this podcast. And all that hard work is paying off. Since 2021, the podcast has grown to over 43,000 downloads worldwide. But you know, I need your help to keep going. Would you consider being a monthly sponsor? Your gift of only $20 a month would enable me to keep sharing hope and teaching skills needed to reduce stress and improve lives for people with FASD and the families who love them. And there's a link in the show note to make it really easy for you. Thank you in advance for partnering with me and keeping this dream alive. We are back with my friend, Dr. Jared Brown, to continue our series, Threats to Emotional Health. Jared has a PhD and several master's degrees, as well as many, many certificates. He is a professor, trainer, and researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. To learn more about Jared, there's a link in the show notes. Today, Jared will dive into the fascinating topic of excessive sugar consumption. It may surprise you that excessive sugar consumption is such a big deal, but you know, it can increase depression and anxiety, increase cognitive impairments. It can create insulin resistance, and then that can lead to diabetes and a whole host of other things. Of course, sugar can be habit forming. It's been said that sugar is as addictive as cocaine. Holy cow, who knew, right? And did you know that the typical Western diet is a huge problem? Yeah. This diet consists of large portions of high calories and excess sugar. This excess sugar amounts to more than 13% of the daily caloric intake and sugary beverages constituting 47% of the added sugars. This is going to be a great episode. I hope you've got your coffee, your notebook, and your pen, and you're all comfortable. Jared, take it away. Robbie, thanks for having me back. This is the second recording in our series on threats to emotional health. And today, to focus on excessive sugar consumption, a threat to emotional health. It's more than a threat to emotional health. It's a threat to cognitive health, brain health. It's a, a threat to physical health. It's a threat to behavioral health, but really trying to focus on the emotional health side of things. And I know most people probably have had some problems with sugar at some point. Who hasn't? Me. Yes. (laughs) Who doesn't love sugar? Yes. One thing I do want to say is this is not medical advice. I am not a nutritionist, but I do have several nutrition and health and wellness based certifications. So everything I'm sharing today is based on the peer-reviewed literature, but I'll also talk a little bit of just my observations on consulting on cases where maybe a client was diagnosed with autism or ADHD or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I don't want to go too deep in the weeds with your audience today with this first one, because sugar is a really big, complicated topic. When you think of like table sugar, just think of it as like it's sucrose. So you want to be aware of that name. You want to be aware of the name glucose. You want to be aware of the name fructose. Another couple terms, diasaccharides and monosaccharides. These are big terms. We're not going to go in the weeds with all of these today. But if we do follow-ups, I can absolutely go deeper into this. But 
we're all consuming sugar. Sugar, we need sugar. We need glucose. Glucose is our energy source in our body. We need that to survive. But when we get too much of these things, and depending on what type it is too, if it's high fructose corn syrup, if it's all very processed kinds of refined types of sugars, we got to be aware of that. And I'm not advocating either way, just providing information, but please talk to your healthcare provider or nutritionist about these things. Why am I talking about this? Because almost every single case I consult on, especially someone who's diagnosed with FASD or autism, the overwhelming majority of the cases, it seems like they use a lot of sugar, way more than the general population. But in the general population, if we go back and look at like the history of sugar, which is very fascinating and it has kind of a dark history, around the late 1700s in America at that time, people were consuming around four pounds of sugar per person each year. And most of that sugar was coming from like natural sources and fruits and things like that. Jump forward to where we're at today. That number is astronomically higher. I mean, it is outrageous. I know there's a statistic from the mid-90s that say people consume around 120 pounds of sugar now per year. Our bodies weren't adapted to take in all of the sugar. So the question comes up, does this relate to the obesity epidemic? Does this relate to metabolic dysfunction? Yes, yes. There's a lot of other factors as well. But yes, it absolutely, we need to be aware of this. Depending on the guidelines you look at, in the United States, I mean, we have a lot of different sources, just looking at some of the different guidelines. Some of them say that the average American consumes around 94 grams of added sugar every day. The recommended, again, depending on the guideline you look at, is around 25. So we're, uh, the average American is, is consuming significantly higher amounts of sugar that's recommended by various guidelines. Looking too, if you if your audience is interested in this, going to the World Health Organization and just typing in sugar consumption, free sugars, the World Health Organization recommends that people reduce the consumption of free sugars, which includes like concentrated sugars, refined sugars, but as well as natural sugars, like natural sugars, honey and syrup and juices. So all of these things have sugar in it. But there's sneaky things that have sugar, right? Like They're bread everywhere. Bread has sugar. For a long time, the health craze was buying reduced fat, everything, like salad dressing, everything, yogurt, everything was reduced fat. But what went up was the sugar. Yes. And there's actually documentaries, different things on YouTube that talk about that very thing. Absolutely. Because in a lot of those low fat things, they, they tasted horribly. So how do you cover up something that tastes horribly? You sugar. add sugar. And in particular, in a lot of these cases, it's going to be like high fructose corn syrup, which was, I believe, introduced in the United States in the mid 1970s, but it was developed, I believe, in Japan, I think in 1966. So just interesting history there. This is where it gets interesting too, because in order for people to not overconsume sugar, they have to have that ability to self-regulate and be self-aware. And sugar, it's really unregulated. Tobacco's not, alcohol's not. Just something to think about when we look at this through a self-regulation lens. Everyone with FASD is going to have some level of self-regulation issue. Is it a self-regulation deficit around food? What about sleeping habits in terms of do they pick a good movie or do they pick doing something else over going to bed at night? If they pick the entertainment over going to getting a good night's sleep, that's a self-regulation deficit. Financial overspending bad financial decision-making, overconsumption of fluids at night too, just pounding down the, the caffeine, pounding down even water right before bed. What happens? You're probably waking up several times a night to go to the bathroom. There's a case I consulted on where that was the very issue that was going on with sleep. Tobacco, 
driving habits, the way they communicate under stress, having a good work-life balance. If they have issues in all those areas, those are really rooted in self-regulation issues. Again, there's other things going on too, but Robbie, what are you noticing? Well, I'm noticing too that when somebody is dysregulated, Women talk a lot about when they are menstruating, their PMS, we're craving sugar. We want, well, salties or we want sugar and chocolate to help us feel better. That's part of it. When we feel bad, what do we want? We want sugar to make us feel better. You know, what feels better than a nice bowl of ice cream in the moment, but in the long run, it doesn't. But in terms of the self-regulation, I notice that my son in particular, right now at 15, he's not just craving sugar, he's demanding sugar. And he is unregulated when he's demanding it and becomes increasingly dysregulated when I say no. And I look for an alternative, like a natural, I'll cut you up some apples. Would you like an orange? How about a glass of unsweetened orange juice? You know, like this kind of a thing. Because I don't keep candy in my house because like everybody who listens to the show, they know if you have candy in your house, your kids are going to sniff it out. But what's that about, Jared? He comes home daily. Mom, can I have $5 to go to the store to buy candy? What's going on? Could there be an addictive tendency there? Could there be? <laughs> yeah. But sugar does that. I've heard that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. So it hijacks the brain, doesn't it? It does. I've, I've heard it. It's sometimes, you, depending on what you read, sometimes it's more addictive. Sometimes, depending on the study or person saying it, it might be just as addictive. The brain lights up similarly. Is sugar an addiction? You're going to find tons of studies that say yes. You'll find a few that say no. It depends on probably who's done the study. Try to get fun. off of sugar. Try yeah. Just try to get off of sugar. When I, I tried to get off of sugar, that was as much of a mental psychological game as it was anything else to try to purge the excess sugar from my life. So my I wife would, and I went off sugar. We tried it, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. And we we were able to do it. It was very hard. I was frustrated, irritable the first many, many days. Yeah. I don't know what that was. Was it a withdrawal? Was it, did I have some dependence on it? Well, I, I sure think so. Yeah. There's many workbooks written on this now, tons of articles, documentaries. But again, it, is it 100% conclusive that sugar is just as addictive as cocaine, alcohol, methamphetamines. This is my opinion. Yes. And maybe more because it's so available to everybody. It's legal. It's cheap. It's in everything. You mentioned bread. It's in ketchup, barbecue oh gosh, sauce. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And it gets confusing because you look at a label Probably a lot of people are like looking for like sugar or maple syrup or honey or high fructose corn syrup, all those things. But I believe there's at least 61 different names that are used on food labels that are sugar. They just maybe change the name. Maybe it's a different type of sugar, but it, it's still sugar. So that that's where it gets tricky. And we also want to be aware of too, when we over consume the, the sugar. Looking at some of this research literature, it is linked to a rise in non-cumulical diseases. Again, there's probably other things, and it does have a similar effect on the body as does alcohol. But think of alcohol. Alcohol is a teratogen. It's toxic. It's ethanol. It, it's a type of sugar. So when we think of like non-cumulical diseases, these are going to be diseases that are like diabetes, certain types of cancers, certain types of cardiovascular diseases, increases in stroke and heart attacks. A lot of times these non-communicable diseases are really associated with poor eating habits, tobacco use, using drugs and alcohol, not getting exercise. Air pollution has been studied within this context too. So so there's lots coming at us that are toxins. There's many things we can not do much about. We can't do much about air pollution. Um, I mean, to some degree, maybe we can, we can all try to reduce our carbon footprint. And if we can live in a healthier, greener environment than green, as in, I mean, trees and plants and that kind of thing, 
there's some things we cannot control, but the sugar is something that we can regain control of or try to. And as I'm thinking about what you said, um, sugar being hidden in different things like the ketchup and the barbecue sauce and in the relish and in everything that we might be sauces that we use when we're cooking. You know, over time too, gotten busier and busier. There's two income households or it's a single parent who's working. So then there's less home cooked meals, like right from scratch. When you cook food from scratch, you know exactly what's in there. When you're like me and you buy the jar of spaghetti sauce and you cook the spaghetti and you add the two and call it home cooked, <laughs> um, you don't really know what's all in there. Even if you do read the labels, and I do, some of it's really sneaky and hard to understand. It is. So some of it comes down to self-control, but some of it too, it's so hard for someone to disconnect from this way of eating especially if we're talking about lower socioeconomic status, because certain types of programs, what kind of food do they give? Things that are loaded with sodium and carbs and sugar. And just when I was in school, oh my goodness gracious, vending <laughs> machines, pizza, pastry, whatever you wanted, terrible food for you. I didn't know anything about this at that time. The best fries and gravy in college. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Some hospitals that I've been to have a McDonald's on the first floor. I mean, it's everywhere. So it's very difficult. And we need to think of this prenatally too. And I'll talk about that as well. And there's an obesity epidemic, but there's also an obesity epidemic in young, young children. So it is having an impact on biochemistry, which is beyond their control. So there's a lot of things going on. Another topic that just for your audience to be aware of, the Western diet. It's a term, if you go online, go to like Google Scholar, tons and tons of literature on the Western diet. The Western diet is going to be really more processed foods, refined foods, refined grains, people that typically rely on only a Western diet. It's been associated with more mental health challenges, more physical health issues. So the Western diet is pretty much fast food, restaurants, highly just processed, refined kinds of sugars, all that stuff. And we all eat it from time to time. Some rely on it and it's cheap too. Some some clients that I, I've worked with, they just eat at the gas station. That's all that, that's gas station food. They don't oh. have a lot of money. They're on a fixed income. So are you, yes. what are you going to spend a dollar on, a bag of carrots or a, a a bunch of chips that have way more calories. My mouth fell open. You said gas station food. I know. Well, and, and I'm trying to teach my kids, and I'm sure we all are trying to teach our kids, you know, if they get their allowance and they want to go buy candy or a treat for themselves, let's say at the 7-Eleven, right? The gas station, the convenience store. Um, I'm trying to teach them, you know, if you went to the grocery store, you could get the same item for less money, and then you have more money to buy something else with or in their case, I could buy more candy with $5, oh. but also trying to teach it's not going to be nothing healthy there, no nutritional value. And it's actually going to cost you more in the long run than if you knew how to cook rice and beans. And yeah. that'll go a lot farther. You could feed a whole family on rice and beans and a bit of seasoning. But do you know how? Have you been shown? Do you have, like you said, um, capacity deficiencies where maybe you don't know how to cook or self-regulation to choose healthier over instant and convenient? Well, part of being able to cook is an independent living skill, which is an adaptive, it's adaptive functioning. And very so difficult for many of our people. Everyone with FASD has adaptive functioning deficits. Let's bring COVID into this equation. During the worst of COVID, and hopefully the worst is over, we don't know yet, obviously, what happens in the future, but during like the lockdowns, there were a good handful of studies that showed that there was an increased tendency for people to buy more canned foods and ultra-processed food products to store them because I think they were afraid that they might not have enough food. And what are in a lot of those canned foods or ultra-processed products? Higher contents of sodium, fat, sugar. It may have an impact on the insulin response level. We saw increases in weight gain. It can have changes in the brain, that part of the brain that's responsible for our reward system. Is it a full-blown addiction or is it addictive-like behaviors to overconsume food? Depending on the individual and the family, 
there's a lot of stress going on with COVID and there still is. And this research really pointed to the fact increases in mood swings, anxiety, fear, weight gain, fast food consumption, avoidant behavior, changes in sleep patterns. The list goes on and on and on. Some families did better than others. Some did not. Yeah, we were in the same storm, but we were not all in the same boat. That's for sure. Yeah, even within the same household, it can have a different impact. For for me, I'm an introvert. I'm okay being yeah, home. You were for fine. my wife. She's an extrovert. She wants to be out in about more. So, it, depending even within that own family system. Two other um, topics to be aware of if you want to learn more. Refined food addiction is a term found in the literature. A little controversy around it. And then junk food addiction is another term that's going to come oh, up from time to time. 100%. Yeah. So thinking about that, let's, let's think about excessive sugar consumption. Again, what are some of the consequences that could result? And again, please talk to a nutritionist or qualified healthcare professional before doing anything with these things. A very high sugar diet. There's literature that studies it within the context of increases in emotional problems. So increases in depression, increases in anxiety. There may also be, in some cases, an increased likelihood that it could contribute to some cognitive impairments for some individuals. When we think of sugar addiction in general, again, this this is a term that you can find online and you can find several studies. And some of these studies have suggested that refined kinds of added sugars, at the very least, have habit-forming kinds of tendencies. Same with caffeine and nicotine and cocaine and alcohol, and the list goes on and on and on. At least in the United States, there are some studies that even, I think some of these studies were now three or four years of age, there's at least 110 million Americans in the United States that have some form of insulin resistance. That could be partially explained, not not totally, but by an increased level of sugar-related tendencies, addictions. So we need to be aware of insulin resistance. And if you're not familiar with the topic of insulin, insulin's a hormone made by the pancreas. It is a good thing. It helps glucose kind of in our blood, enter the cells of our liver, our muscles, other parts of the body, it's used as our energy source. Insulin resistance can be temporary or chronic. A lot of times when you think of diabetes, you always think of insulin resistance. If you have insulin resistance, doesn't mean you always have diabetes, but you're on that trajectory if things get worse and worse and worse and worse. Over time, Insulin isn't produced properly. Our bodies aren't communicating effectively on the biochemistry level. Things are in haywire. It can throw off lots of things in our body. Inflammation, the gut, the brain, the HPA access. Why is that the case? Because if we're consuming high, high levels of sugar on a daily basis, the research does point to the fact that increases inflammation in our body. Obesity oxidated stress. And if you're not familiar with the term oxidated stress, really think of it as an imbalance between like free radicals and antioxidants in your body. A lot of people have heard of the term antioxidants. Oxidated stress contributes to more like wear and tear. Over time, it can damage cells and tissues. And over time too, it can increase the aging process. So we can have more like premature aging, It's been implicated in multiple disorders and diseases. So oxidated stress, another big, big topic. Before I talk about prenatal sugar consumption, which is a good handful of studies on that, any thoughts, Robbie? It's interesting how in our first uh, recording about threats to emotional well-being, emotional health, we talked about irritability. Now we're talking about excessive sugar consumption and the things you're listing off here in terms of throwing off gut health, um, in- increased inflammation, uh, damaging again the uh, HPA axis and oxidative, oxidated stress. It all goes to increased irritability as well. 
Absolutely. Uh, it, our blood it, sugars it, crash or they go through the roof. All that can throw off homeostasis in our body and a whole cascade of biochemical processes that are out of whack. And, and fighting a craving will make you irritable, as you found out. Like even if you're trying not to give into it, but or your parents are trying to not let you give in to, you know, have all the sugar you wish you could have. Let me tell you, brother, there's going to be some increase in irritability. Um, for everybody and, and, you know, until we get through that storm. So, you know, here we are, we're talking about an individual, we're going to get to the prenatal period where, you know, alcohol is being present and perhaps poor nutrition as well. So we're talking about that prenatal sugar, um, which we know this prenatal alcohol damages the function and the structure of the brain and the body of the individual. It damages that HPA access. It already makes them irritable and sensitive. And now we're talking postnatally in the whole lifetime period. What are we eating and how that, how is that? contributing to our mental well-being, our cognitive well-being, our emotional well-being, physical well-being. Like this is such an important topic. Let's go backwards. Let's look at the prenatal period. There's a, a handful of studies and more and more studies are coming out looking at prenatal sugar consumption, which is just fascinating to me. And I'm not talking about like low levels, like high levels of prenatal sugar consumption based on the available research. And some of them can differ depending on the sample size, all that stuff. But showing more adverse outcomes for that developing child in utero as well as the mom. And a couple of the reasons for that is during pregnancy is mom consuming tons and tons of like sugar processed foods. Is there other things going on too? that may increase risk of maternal obesity or maternal-based metabolic dysfunction. Maybe she's not sleeping well. She's dealing with higher levels of inflammation. Now, if you introduce tobacco into it, drugs into it, alcohol, trauma, lower socioeconomic status, just not having access to money, not having access to health insurance, you're not getting good prenatal care. All of this is kind of fuel on the fire. So when you start cutting out sugar, I just, I thought of this now with the irritability piece, but some of the research too, if you're going through kind of like a sugar withdrawal or something, what what are the symptoms you might, might feel? Irritability, anxiety, you're more shaky, you could feel more depressed, those kind of things. So it's really, it's just really fascinating. And this literature, if you really want to take it to a deep level, Excessive sugar consumption intake has been studied within the context, obviously, of obesity, type 2 diabetes. It's been looked at on how it can sometimes alter or impact behavioral functioning and brain functioning. So we need to be aware of not just the emotional side of things, but the physical, the social component of this too, which is very fascinating to think about as well. What are some of the factors that could contribute to higher sugar consumption intake? The research literature has found that younger kids may be more likely, people with lower levels of income and lower levels of education, people who concurrently smoke cigarettes or use alcohol and don't get a lot of movement, a lot of physical inactivity are just a few of the variables that may place people at greater risk to use sugar. Anecdotally, I see trauma. There's a couple studies that say like high levels of early childhood trauma may place people at greater risk for consuming foods that are not good for them, including sugar. So could that be a factor in some, some of these cases? Absolutely. Can I just interrupt there too? Yeah, you, you bet. When, earlier you said like socially, how do we use sugar socially? And I'm thinking like it may be in a very simplistic way, but I mean, when we're even sometimes, well, throughout our whole lives, sugar is part of every celebration and every grief. I mean, every birthday party, we have a lovely sugary cake and we probably have candy and all sorts of things. Uh, we celebrate with alcohol. That's sugar. Uh, for at a funeral, I mean, I was just at a funeral this summer and, you know, the, you know, at some funerals, there's alcohol. There wasn't at this one, but there's also, you know, there's sandwiches. There's sugary treats everywhere you go. If you're at a wedding, abundance of food and alcohol and sugar. Um, when a child is, is rewarded for even learning how to go in the potty, here's a candy reward. Oh, you've been such a nice little girl getting your hair cut or a nice little boy getting your hair cut. Here's a lollipop. 
you know, it's everywhere we go. We we are reinforcing with sugar or we are soothing with sugar. It's everywhere. Yes, it is so hard. Can people make the decision not to do this? It makes it tough because if you have no other options, it's everywhere you turn. If you're on foods, food assisted programs, I mean, if you have to go to a food shelf, it's well, then, everywhere. Yeah, you're going to get, uh, you're, you're, stuck. Gonna, you're stuck because you're going to be eating pasta and you're going to be eating uh whole like white pasta, which confess that's what we eat in our house, but you're going to be having pasta. You're going to have prepared sauce. You're going to have sugary cereal or at the whim of whatever's available to you, um, canned, uh, fruits, um, which is going to be high in sugar. You're going to peanut butter, high in sugar, jam, high in sugar. It's all there. And yet you're trying your best to feed yourself and your family. Well, and all the things that we tend to rely on granola bars, high in sugar. Yes. Very true. And what's the biggest, biggest added source of sugar for most kids, teenagers, sugary sweetened beverages. Oh gosh, yeah. And that's a whole nother segment. I, I don't know if we can open that can of worms today, but a very high percentage of youth consume sugar sweetened beverages. And if we look at some of the data, there's studies that have been published too on prenatal sugar sweetened beverage exposure as well. And some of the data coming out shows that it is not promising for child development. So I'm not telling anyone what to do, but just looking into that literature and talking to your healthcare provider. Unfortunately, too, there's a sizable minority of infants who are consuming sugar sweetened beverages, according to the literature. Yes, which is- juice, juice in their bottles or pop in their bottles and just so unhealthy and and not good for their development and then you see these babies with bottle rot you know i i've seen that where you know a child is four five years old and they don't have any teeth in front anymore some literature too is leaning to the fact that people that consume higher levels of sugar sweetened beverages may spend more time on the screen as well so they're on the screen sipping their soda you're not moving you're not getting good nutrition. It's a it's a double-edged sword, unfortunately. Think about energy drinks. There's a whole line of literature on energy drinks. And some of that literature is, is not good. All of the, these things, too, have been related. Li- all of that literature isn't good unless it's paid for by the energy drink company, right? And I know my, <laughs> my teenage boy... Uh, God love a teenage boy. Hey, like that's just a different breed. But I mean, he wants to be drinking those energy drinks because I think they're marketed to the kids and they think it's cool and a big, big guy thing to do. But I mean, that stuff is poison, all the caffeine, all the sugar, all the chemical, all the dyes that are in there. And even if he has a little bit, and let me just say he has that without my permission, but if he has it, that kid's not sleeping and he already has a sleep disorder. He already has ADHD, FASD, Tourette syndrome, anxiety. I mean, he's not helping himself at all. And then he's just twitching all night. He can't sleep. I can't agree more. And you take FASD out of the equation, high levels of sugar-sweetened beverages have been shown to negatively impact sleep executive function. In some cases, it has been shown in some studies to increase higher levels of impulse control problems, episodic memory, poor decision-making. The list goes on and on and on. But if you look at some of the special populations, There have been studies that have looked at ADHD and excessive sugar consumption, and some of these studies have found that it may exacerbate hyperactivity and inattentiveness and distraction and decreased performance. There's actually several studies that have looked at this within the context of autism as well, which is really fascinating. And anecdotally, my second area of expertise is autism. The majority of people that I've worked with on the autism spectrum who've been adults do consume high levels of sugar. FASD, not much out there, but there's a few studies that look at eating patterns, abnormal eating behaviors from these empirical-based studies and have shown that intakes of sugar and processed kinds of foods may be higher. Anecdotally, almost every single case I've consulted on in the last few years when it's been an adult with FASD 
in a lot of the cases I consult on, the person lives in a group home. Almost every one of them is binging on sugar and a very high percentage are overweight as well. Robbie, any thoughts from the FASD lens? Well, what in the world do we do? What what in the world do we do? Because sometimes, you know, I, I'm thinking from the perspective of before our kids are, are to that adult stage. And when they're very young babies and toddlers and little kids, we might be able to guide uh, what they're eating. But some of our kids just refuse to eat anything else. You know, know. if it doesn't taste good, if it doesn't taste sugary, they refuse to eat it. And so this is where I know, like, I give in and other parents give in. Like, maybe I know a a kid who really the only thing he ever wants to eat is McDonald's. And that's not something his parents want to um, do. And yet, if he refuses to eat anything else, you know, so and this. So that's one example. I've seen programs too with children who have autism. Again, that's not my area of expertise, but such rigid, um, acceptability, such limited ex- acceptability of what a child will eat. Maybe they'll only eat fish sticks and fries. Maybe they'll only eat chicken fingers and fries and with their ketchup. And that's all they'll eat. My son, like if he could just eat nachos, corn chips and cheese, that's all he would eat. It's rigid. And so parents, let's say we're trying to do the best we can. The more we learn, the you know, when we know better, we do better. So we're trying to learn. What do we do about this, Jared? Because we already have enough fights and struggles in our homes. How do we move away from that sugar? Well, the, again, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to give any medical advice here. First and foremost, talk to your healthcare provider. Maybe it's consulting with a nutritionist. A lot of people have never even considered that as a potential intervention, which I, in my opinion, should be one of the frontline interventions, including sleep. And why should people care about this topic? Mm -hmm. Because in my opinion, and some of the research, it's not FASD specific literature, but if you can reduce the sugar and someone eats healthier, problematic behaviors go down. Now, what does the research say about an FASD brain in this? We need more researchers digging into this. There's not a lot. Anecdotally, I see that things get better. The person is moving more, getting better sleep, is working with a multidisciplinary team who understands FASD, who can also provide support to the family. Because if the family's never had education on this and has no idea about any of these things, this might be the first time someone's ever heard anything about some of these topics. It can be overwhelming. It can be confusing. So I think just empowering yourself by learning about these topics, working with professionals who understand these topics, forming the multidisciplinary team who understands FASD, for the family, getting education around this. Again, this might be the first time anyone's ever heard about a lot of these topics. It has significant implications for emotional, social, behavioral, learning, all of these things getting better sleep. Every week you tell me that. Yep. Number <laughs> one, <week>. in my <laughs> opinion. I I agree. I agree. And you also, last time we talked, um, not on the show, but you said that your objective or one of the goals and self-care things you do for yourself is nine hours of sleep. And you said, is it 30 or 60 minutes of high intensity workout daily High intensity interval training i try to do around 30 40 minutes a day it resets me yeah i'm not advocating for anyone to do that those are like boot camp style training talk to a healthcare provider before doing it but, but exercise but, anything just movement movement Stretching. and you, you talked about that for your own self-care but you've talked and I, I don't i don't highlight that to say that's what we all should do but it's been said on this program by others because there are better examples of it than me others have said the importance of exercise in their life helps them sleep better resets their emotional well-being their equilibrium uh resets their cognitive uh equilibrium so that they can better respond to their kids in and because we all live in a really high stress situation if we're raising kids with FASD and we want to do the best we can and so sleep and exercise are key to that and learning the importance of how to regulate blood sugar levels to talk to a nutritionist just because someone doesn't have diabetes doesn't mean they're not going to have blood sugar dysregulation. The very nature of skipping a meal or overeating or eating the wrong foods can throw off blood sugar. And I, I hear this a lot, different certifications I've done. One of the best things 
for improving mental health and maintaining it is regulating blood sugar. Blood sugar goes too high, not good. It goes too low, not good. Maintaining a normal body weight, easier said than done if we're dealing with like metabolic dysfunction, biochemical kinds of dysregulation in the body. But sleep plays a huge role in maintaining appropriate weight. People don't realize that couple neurohormones we can talk about another time, ghrelin and leptin, definitely recommend looking into that. I'm a big fan too of the psychoneuroimmunology literature as well as neurocounseling literature. And in the neurocounseling world, you're going to hear something called therapeutic lifestyle changes. Therapeutic lifestyle changes are just common sense things in my opinion, but part of that is going to be nutritional interventions, limiting screen time, decreasing sedentary lifestyle, managing daytime fatigue, just the very, just very common sense things. Improving your relationships with people actually can have a huge impact on inflammation. Even Social- for introverts. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Even for introverts. I know. Volunteering <laughs> has been shown to be very, very healthy for that individual. Recreation, getting out in nature, just different things we can do. Part of therapeutic lifestyle changes, if you look at that literature, you're going to hear self-regulation talked about a lot too. I'm a huge fan of self-regulation. Finding a counselor, therapist, or some sort of coach that can really teach self-regulation skills, maybe through that executive functioning lens. I think those those are some things you really want to think about. Again, what, what do we do about it? I mean, learning about it, what we're doing today, some of those other things, forming that multidisciplinary team. I think from a holistic lens, the whole body lens, look at sleep, look at nutrition. Are we staying hydrated? I know people that don't ever drink water and they're just drinking coffee and soda all day long. Are they dealing with low-grade dehydration? That's not good. How do we how do we handle stress? Are we managing stress? Do we let it bottle up and explode? Remember we talked about alexithymia. There's actually several studies now that talk about People with higher levels of alexithymia may be more likely to turn to problematic lifestyle choices, including bad eating habits. Just lots of things to think about. Well, sure, because if we don't know, like we feel bad, we feel angry, we feel something, but we're not quite sure what it is. Again, from early on, at least in the Western world, we've been conditioned, hey, I, you know, sugar is a reward. Sugar makes you feel better. It wasn't maybe the intention, but that's what we were taught. And so if we're not aware of what our emotions are, I mean, what do you want to do with it? You just want them to go away and feel better. And so snacking will do that, at least in the moment. Yeah, it does. Yeah. For the most it does part, it work. does in the moment. Then it comes rushing back full force. And then what happens? You need more and more and more. And and if we're just talking snacking, if we're talking chips and pop, that's one thing. If we're talking a bowl of candy and pop, that's that's wow. But what if we're talking alcohol? Then a lot of people are self-soothing with alcohol as well as their chips or whatever they're eating. So I know yeah. it's a lot, it's a lot to take in. But those would be just, I, with this first one, those, I think this is a good starting point. There's a lot to take in. And if your audience is finding this helpful, I think another one specifically on like prenatal sugar consumption or just sugar sweetened beverages, just from an educational lens. Because if you have this knowledge, then you're probably more apt to finding a nutritionist, talking to your doctor and introducing Nutritional interventions in the equation, maybe if appropriate, it is definitely something to consider if you're doing it in conjunction with healthcare providers. Absolutely. And let's come to from a very practical point of view here. There's a lot of information we've had today with this information. When you make your evening meal for your family, you could have water on the table instead of milk or juice or soda. You know, it would reduce the sugar intake. Even milk has sugar in it. So it would produce a little bit of sugar intake and provide another alternative that's also hydrating. That's just one little example. Um, I, I was just talking about this with my friend yesterday because I was talking about my son who is like not just sugar seeking, but sugar demanding these days. And it's really challenging and 
and problematic. And I'm trying to find the balance to give them a little bit of what his body's craving, but not indulge it so much. Um, and so we brainstormed and she said, well, I always have a little bit of candy on hand. And she even tries to buy um, sugar-free candy. So it's sweetened with an alternative. Again, this isn't, it is, this isn't the best, but could it be a step forward? And so she's able to give her kids a small dose of that sugar, that sweet that they're craving. So we can move incrementally. I think that's the thing too, is if we're going to have success over the long term, I think perhaps we need to make some incremental changes. So what's the one thing I can do differently today? Can I sustain that for the week? And then next week, what's the one additional thing I can do differently? So that over time, we've shifted our family's consumption of sugar. And even as parents, let's just put the kids over there for a minute, not talk about them. How about us and our sugar intake? And and what are we doing with our emotions? I, I know when I did the experiment of, I'm going to cut sugar out of my life, Jared, one of the things I had to figure out is now what do I do with my feelings? I didn't know I was eating my feelings, but suddenly I had these feelings and uh, ice cream wasn't able to take it away because I had said no to ice cream. You know, I did a sugar-free September um, and I became aware of it, but I didn't even know I was using sugar to soothe. So now we have to learn a new way. And that's where counseling, walking, exercise, journaling, coloring, um, talking with a friend can be an outlet for some of these stressors and, and enable us to feel them. Sometimes we don't want to feel them though. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I would add to the list, self-efficacy. Learn about self-efficacy and internal locus of control. If you don't know about them, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to make you go learn about it. We can talk about it next time. Oh, there's the quiz next time. (laughs) Look at our screen time habits. My phone tells me. Oh, my phone tells me. Robbie, you were up 20% from last week. Yeah, it's because I found a new game. Darn it. Oh, I have to put that away. Setting a, a good, consistent routine schedule for sleep and wake times. Maybe it's taking a class as a family, learning how to read labels on nutrition, on nutritional labeling. Maybe it's taking a night and watching a documentary or two about sugar. Starting small, empowering yourself. Finding the right nutritionist, functional medicine specialist, those those would be the starting points. Again, I can't give any advice on you should eat this or that, but just general things. There's a lot of good books written on these topics too. If you just go online and Google these topics, you're going to find a lot of workbooks and different things too. Okay, we'll put some invite the people who are listening to this right now, like, what's your aha moment? What's your takeaway? What's the one thing you're going to do different? And let me know. And I can share that with Jared when we uh, come together another time. And I think Jared has given me some homework to dig into this and uh, look at having a nutritionist for my family. I've never done that before. Because you know what? I think we all do as we have learned from our parents. Uh, We tend to cook what our parents cooked, don't we? And if our parents didn't cook much, they did take out than we do take out. My mom actually cooks great from scratch. I'm not a good cook. I don't like to cook. So I do a lot of cook this pasta, warm up this jar of sauce and put it together. And I call that homemade. Um, so I need to learn to do better and invite my kids maybe to join me in that. I started learning about nutrition several years ago and my wife and I started studying it, reading constantly. And then I took it to that next level doing several certifications. And this fall, I'm starting some classes online to go even deeper into it. There's a lot of things we can learn about with this, not just direct nutrition, like certifications and classes, but stress management, screen time, executive function, self-regulation, green space, blue space, learning about sedentary behaviors. These are all things that interconnect, learning about what is metabolic dysfunction. The the more I learn about this, the more it continues to deepen my understanding of why some clients do the things they do. And it gives me better clarity for my own self and the staff I supervise too. So it really trickles down in every aspect of our life. And with sugar, we're all touched by this every single day. Every single day with every single choice we make. 
I think this is fascinating. I look forward to talking with you a lot more about this as we move forward discussing what are are the threats to emotional health, cognitive health, psychological health, what are the threats? And so while this wasn't on our initial plan, we're going to add this because it is so fundamental to all of our well-being. Definitely. And hopefully, yeah, if your audience has questions, I'd love to hear from them and love to hear if you've been able to connect with a professional who understands these topics and FASD. And we need more and more folks in the nutrition world to learn about FASD. And we need lots of people in the FASD world to learn about nutrition. All right. So all the advocates out there, self-advocates and parent advocates and professionals who are listening, we need to be sharing this information with nutritionists and with dietitians and with our healthcare providers too, so that they can, they piques their interest. We're not going to be able to teach them, but perhaps this can pique their interest. I'm going to be sharing this episode with my pediatrician and see if it piques her interest. So Jared, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to learning so much more about neurocounseling. Hey, I'm going to be looking at that therapeutic lifestyle changes. And you know what? And even if I can't move my kids on it, you know, it's the adults in the room who have to lead the way. So if I can get my husband and I going in a more healthy way and encourage our kids to come along, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Thank you, Robbie. I really appreciate it. Whoa, so much information. Again, thank you to my friend, Dr. Brown, for making himself available and giving us his time to teach us and to help us as we are raising our children and caring for individuals who have FASD. So it's so valuable to learn about the various threats to emotional well-being. Be sure to join me for an upcoming episode of the FASD Family Life Podcast when I continue my world tour and I take you down under. We will meet Holly Ann Martin. And we'll be discussing the importance of safeguarding our children in the online world. Holly Ann tells us it's never too early to start training our children, and she has developed an innovative program to help us do that. Click the subscribe button now so you never miss another episode of the podcast. And while you're there, leave a comment and rate the show because that helps other people find the podcast. Are you looking to go deeper in your understanding of FASD? Well, register for my live online. FASD parent training course called FASD Brain Domains, starting on January 23rd. This course will explain the 10 brain domains and how they are damaged by prenatal alcohol exposure. You will also gain the knowledge and practical skills you need to transform your family life from the very first class. This course is presented by FASD specialist Robbie Seal, myself, and Mary Ellen McPhail, Executive Director of O'Shea's Brain Domain in Scotland. Now, you always hear me talking about the importance of having our tribe, finding people who have a common experience. I invite you to join our community of support. The FASD Family Life Community is a support group that meets on the third Tuesday of every month at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And I hope to meet you there. You can go to the link in the show notes of fasdfamilylife.ca to subscribe today for only $10 a month or $100 for an annual subscription. As always, thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.